all you cool cats and kittens know it's not Carol Baskins, but it is yours truly, Brian Nichols, here on The Brian Nichols Show. So, speaking of cool cats, before we get started with today's episode, I have to tell you about our fantastic new sponsor. That's right, you know him, you love him. It is our friends over at the Lions of Liberty podcast. Now, the Lions of Liberty is the greatest libertarian variety show on earth, featuring three unique shows with three unique hosts. Their flagship show on Mondays is hosted by a friend of our show, Mark Clare, featuring interviews with leaders in the libertarian movement, roundtable discussions, debates, and more. More recently, Mark's been focusing on personal development and self-growth, featuring some familiar names like, I don't know, Jason Stapleton or Gary Collins. Wednesdays feature Electric Liberty Land, a weekly shot of comedy, culture, and liberty, hosted by the hilarious and acerbic Brian McWilliams. And on Friday, we have Felony Friday, which is a weekly look at the broken criminal justice system, hosted by John Odermatt, featuring inspiring stories from those who've overcome incredible injustice and adversity. So, head over to your favorite podcast catcher and hit that subscribe button to Lions of Liberty, and then let Mark and the rest of the pride know that Brian Nichols here at the Brian Nichols Show set you. And now, on to the show. Can I pause for a second and, and just note that uh, we got Brian on here who's getting uh, Congressman Massey on, and our typical lineup includes, like, homeless people that believe in Bigfoot? <laughs> Welcome to the Brian Nichols Show, your source for common sense politics on the We Are Libertarians Network. The Brian Nichols Show is the fastest-growing liberty podcast that brings together people from all means of political thought as we seek to have meaningful conversations about the issues you care about. At The Brian Nichols Show, our goal is to leave the audience educated, enlightened, and informed. And now your host, Brian Nichols. Hey there, folks! Brian Nichols here on The Brian Nichols Show Wednesday. It is Wednesday, my dudes, and you are, yes, in store for episode number two of three this week. Uh, episode number one, if you missed it, back on Monday, Alex Epstein from the Moral Case for Fossil Fuels joined the show to discuss, uh, uh, it was a Zac Efron, that's right, I was like, who who wrote this documentary? Zac Efron, the one and only from High School Musical, that's right, um, and his documentary on Netflix, Down to Earth, uh, we, we basically discussed where Zach missed the mark a little bit in the documentary. Great episode there. And uh, coming up next uh, or next episode on Friday, I'm joined by a good friend of the show and a U.S. Senate candidate, Shane Hazel. But today we are joined uh, by Ken Good. Now, Ken uh, has argued cases. He's an attorney. Um, he's argued cases before. I should I should preface that, right? Ken, you're an attorney. Um, you've, he's argued cases before the Supreme Court of Texas uh, and the Supreme Court, uh, Texas Supreme Court of Appeals, along with other num- numerous courts of appeals, including the U.S. Supreme Court of Appeals uh, for the Fifth Circuit. He is the author of Goods on Bail, a practice guide created for bail industry professionals. In addition, he has written numerous articles on the subject of bail reform, including what successful bail reform looks like. And today, he uh, he's joined the show not only to discuss bail reform, but to answer the question, can maybe some uh, too much criminal justice reform or bail reform go too far and end up causing more harm than good? Well, he's joined the show to say, well, yes, it actually can, in fact, cause more harm than good. And hey, you know, we we disagree a little bit, and that's okay. We are still able to have a fun, civil conversation, and uh, I think we left better understanding where the other side lays. So with that being said, without further ado, on to the show! Ken Good here on The Brian Nichols Show. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, thank you for joining us, and uh, I, I think right now, uh, what you're joining us to discuss today is something that is is absolutely needed to be discussed, because there's a lot of chaos in the world right now, Ken. People really don't know, you know, where um, it seems that they're, we're going to have this, this chaos kind of 
come to some end. And I don't, I don't even know if that's the right way to frame it because, um, you know, th- these are, these are problems that we've had in America for, for quite a long time. And a lot of this stuff has been boiling to a head and most notably we're referring to right now what's happening, um, specifically in response to the, the George Floyd, um, you know, murder there at the hands of the police in, um, in, in Minnesota. And, and with that, this, this led to this whole, um, you know, spiraling of, of Black Lives Matter protesting, rightfully, um, is, issues of, of criminal justice reform much, much needed. But then it's, devo- it's devolved in many cases, in especially big cities, into beyond that. And it's mostly this, this looting and rioting. And what we're seeing is in areas where libertarians definitely agree with our friends on the left, and this would be an area of bail reform, right, that despite um, our agreements there, we, we still find ourselves, um, you know, behind the eight ball. And, and by that, I mean, we're, we're actually now watching people who, dare I say, um, are not, um, you, you consider to be your nonviolent offenders. Now they're back in the streets and they're causing a lot of uh, pain and suffering to uh, your average innocent person. Well, I think I would state it a different way. And, and I would state it, especially for our inner cities, we've seen failures of schools. We've seen failures of families. We've seen a place. And really what it is to me is we're just taking away all accountability and we're no longer going to hold anyone accountable for what they do. And I think that's uh, really kind of where we're getting to, because anything you talk about is really just a message or a short form for saying, well, let's take out accountability. Let's just give them a PR bond. No accountability. Let's give bail funds. No accountability. Let's let's just give them many, many chances. If they don't show up, we're not going to punish them. If they fail to appear, removing accountability. We're just taking all accountability away from the criminal justice system. And they're seeing that. And we're seeing that as a green light to commit more crime. So I think you're going to hear some some libertarians who are going to give you some pushback, and I, I think I'll I'll try to frame. So I like I like the argument. There's a gentleman named Dave Smith in our politi- our, our libertarian circles, and he says he likes to straw uh, not straw man the argument. He likes to steel man the argument, right? So if I were to steel man uh, the strongest position of a libertarian argument from like extreme libertarian perspective, they're going to say, but Ken, isn't your average person who's being arrested and put in jail? Um, you know, when they're, they're being held with, with these high, um, you know, bails and, and bonds that that's a undue, um, un, undue process, if you will, if you're not in, uh, protecting their rights, because now you're, you're putting an arbitrary dollar amount next to their ability to, to, you know, live free despite being just accused of a crime, not actually being convicted of a crime. I, I don't agree with that. And I don't agree with it because, uh, we only have so many dollars in our criminal justice system. And if you are forcing the, the county or the state to move more of those dollars to the front end of the criminal justice case, you know, like, I mean, if you think about all the things that the you know private sector does in this situation, you know, we get people out of jail, we provide supervision, we make sure they go to court. If they don't go to court, we go find them. And if you're pushing all of those things over to the criminal justice system, then you're moving substantial numbers of dollars, you know, for a state like California, hundreds of millions of dollars in a state like Texas, hundreds of millions of dollars to the front end of the criminal justice system. And you're making it impossible. They, they don't have the funds to get cases to the, through the process. And so, I mean, the reason why we've been around for 200 years is because I like to say we're the grease that keeps the, the belt of the criminal justice system moving. I mean, uh, and you can't, without us, your system is shutting down. And that's what you've seen in all the states where they've tried these reforms. Their, their system is getting overwhelmed. Harris County is the best example. They they limited bail, uh, private surety bail and their misdemeanor cases. And in a year, their pending dockets have doubled. And, you know, they just had a report to their uh, commissioner's court that they need to uh, dismiss 18,000 cases 
to prevent the criminal justice system from collapsing. That's that's craziness. So let me ask you this. Um, what about those folks who maybe are your, your more traditional, and I'll, I'll try to be as sympathetic or empathetic to the argument from the, the libertarian argument, and that would be, you know, your average person who is, you know, a, a low-level drug offender, right? You know, they get caught with a couple ounces of weed, and they get slapped with this misdemeanor, right? And now they have to pay to get out of jail. Why, to that person, right? I mean, the only crime they really commit, if we're going to, you know, go to that standard, is they, they've had a plan, right? And, and at that point, what do we say are... What's, what's the arbitrary level of some laws that we have in place? I, I know, obviously, you know, we're going to start talking about harm and, and externalities and such, and that's, that's, that's a fair argument, I think, but more so to just the idea that you take your average person who is, you know, in this case, committing a nonviolent crime, and then you have a situation where they are now stuck in a cage unless they're able to provide X amount of dollars. Well, but do, I mean, I think the libertarians, and I mean, I think from all factions or the whole spectrum of the uh, political sphere, we should all agree that your the determination of whether you get prosecuted should not be made by politics. It should be made across the board. And what we're seeing now in more and more places, especially in Texas right now, is depending on who's the DA, they're making a determination of whether to prosecute somebody like for low-level drug offense on politics. It's a policy reason. It's not a, uh, it's not a decision based on justice. And in Texas, we've already enacted a site and release and, you know, low level drug offenses for especially for marijuana is offense that uh, is an offense that you just get a citation and right. a date to court. And then we have all these DAs who are just refusing to uh, prosecute those crimes. And so I don't think I mean, that's not the problem. And where you see is we're getting rid of all these this accountability is you're getting those people who are saying, hey, I didn't get any penalty. So let me do something else. And you know where we're having what we're seeing as a result is you know, the average number of people who are in jail now are, you know, they're on their fourth or fifth uh, crime or charge or conviction. And yes, that right there really quick before I let you go forward. Now, that exactly is a point um, that I think I heard you on a show recently from uh, an appearance you were on in June. And one of the arguments you made I was very, very, very sympathetic towards was the idea that, hey, listen, you have these, these what would be considered low-level offenders who are now committing more egregious offenses because they're looking at that as, you know, hey, I got away with this, now I can get away with that. And when you go to the, I'm getting away with that, now that those higher-level offenses are, you know, in in some cases, causing now that violent harm on people. And you referring, uh, you know, when I was being reached out to there, uh, specifically the looting and rioting, right, that we're seeing and how that actually exacerbated these issues that we're seeing in the cities. So, Ken, extrapolate upon that that um, that position there, you know, that this is actually causing a lot more harm for these people that's actually trying to help. Well, I think it's it's just human nature, you know, in our human nature when we're when we do something and we get away with it, then we want to do it again. I mean, that's the whole concept. Whatever you're successful at and if you're successful at crime, um, but I, I would say, I mean, that sounds a terrible way to say it. I, I would say in a different way that once once you start down a path and you're you're being told that you have no consequences for it, then I think that it becomes more difficult to get people in the right path. The criminal justice system most uh, many times is that person's final chance to become a productive citizen. You know, like I've already mentioned, all these other things have already failed them. And if you already failed them that many times, how are these same people who are saying, well, we can fix it all by just uh, changing the criminal justice system? Well, 
I would argue everything we've seen has made the criminal justice system as big of a failure as their response to drug addiction, as their response to uh, uh, failures in schools, as, their, as to lost school, I mean, job opportunities. Look, at these, these inner cities already had a few job opportunities, and we just, the elected officials gave them a green light to destroy what few jobs they had in their inner cities, and now it's even going to be worse. In the next few years, they're going to have less tax dollars to take care of their people and less, even fewer business opportunities for their citizens. There's definitely the externalities. I, I definitely empathize. I, li- I live in Philadelphia. I mean, I saw it firsthand. There was a Lowe's that was, I was trying to, you know, get some stuff for my home and it's been closed for quite literally months because the entire Lowe's was, was re- looted. And, um, you know, I, I definitely am, am sympathetic towards that argument. And, you know, my, my history, right? I came from the right. So I, I, I speak the language of the right. I empathize ent- entirely with, you know, we need law and order. We need this, this, you know, this, we can't have just absolute chaos. And I think you're, you're hitting the nail on the head in terms of discuss, you're identifying the right problem. You hit it, like, you know, you're talking about the left and there's solutions to, you know, solving poverty and, and, you know, the, the war on drugs, education. And I guess my, my pushback a little bit would be, well, Ken, the, the reason I would say those have failed is because our friends on the left have looked to the solution being that of more government. So I would then say, couldn't it be argued that looking at, you know, what we're doing here with, with, um, you know, trying to add on these, um, these, and let's just, let's not even look at the bail, right? Let's look at the actual crimes that are being committed. There's a lot of stuff that's, that's considered to be a crime that I think you and I would, would agree it shouldn't be a crime. I'm not sure. Are you on Twitter by chance? A little bit. Okay. So there's a, a great Twitter profile you should look at. It's called the crime a day. And basically what the, the profile does, it just, it tweets these just hilarious uh, laws that are out there that are technically felonies, but they're like, you, you, you'd look at it and you'd be like, wait, what? It'd be like, you know, you, you uh, can't have orange juice while sitting in the diner on the left-hand side on Thursdays. And if you do, you commit it, like it's committing a felony. And, and you see that and you're like, well, goodness, if your average person is committing, I think the number is like three or four felonies per day, then couldn't it be argued that the better solution instead of looking at the bail, right, would be let's kind of reel back what our, our you know, justice system or, or criminal justice system is, is trying to do in terms of curbing behavior. Because I think it's it's quite obvious and fair to state that we're asking our police officers to do a lot. And like, to think that you have a police officer, I mean, you're you're a lawyer by by trade. I mean, you you study the law your entire career. To think we're having a police officer who not only has to have all that legalese, um, you know, to to some certain extent, but then also has to react real time to these very very heated uh, you know incidences at times. I think it's it's unfair to them almost to to put them in that kind of position. So, am I on am I on the wrong, the wrong path there? You know, in saying maybe we should scale back some stuff. No, I agree with you. I think there would be uh, agreement across both parties that we need to have a top-down review of what constitutes a crime, uh, and we need to get rid of a lot of crimes. Now, we may not have agreement on specifics because that kind of gets to the policy. You know, the, the majority that was in effect when that statute passes became a crime. It, so we may uh, diverge on the, pol- uh, on the on specifics, but we should be able to come to agreement on we need to pare down our crimes. You know, we the response is we can't have a new, make something a new crime every day. I would say also we, we do ask our police to do a lot, but the newest solution is instead of sending police, we're going to send uh, caseworkers, social workers. And, and I think that is not only stupid, it's the laughable because a caseworker has no authority to send anybody to drug rehab. 
A caseworker has no, no authority to send anybody to a mental health care facility. The only reason why people go to those facilities is because they're under threat of being put in jail if they don't agree to go. So they get under court uh, jurisdiction. So we do ask the police to do a lot. But if we think that we can replace that by doing caseworkers, it's it's laughable. And the first time someone a caseworker gets killed, you know, who's going to triage that? You know, we get a call. Who's going to make the decision? Well, we're going to send a caseworker. We're going to send a police. No, we're going to send both. We're just going to make it even more expensive. So I'm um I'm much more in the idea that maybe we should we should try to increase competition, right? And I say that in pretty much any aspect in life. Um, you know, I look at education. I think increasing uh, competition in education would improve the education standards across the board, just because now you're allowing the market to compete. And I I think it would be fair to to say that maybe we should maybe reconsider also how we approach our police departments, right? Maybe it would make more sense just as, you know, I know one of my good, uh, good friends there, Corey D'Angelis over at the Reason um, Foundation looking at uh, education. He entirely promotes school choice and, and it's entirely because it does improve the education standards. So I, I guess I would, I would ask you, because obviously, Ken, your, your experience is law. Do you think there's some merit to the argument that if we were to maybe look at like contracting uh, police departments, Versus having you know, your 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 top down government monopoly, uh, you know, and, and libertarians like the expression monopoly on violence, right? Because at the end of the day, there's only one entity that can do that. But we have private security forces; they seem to be doing decent because they they have to you know respond to market forces and in some cases civil forces, uh, being that the civil justice system. So I guess is, is there an argument there that that has some merit in your eyes? I don't think so. And the reason why is because I think the reality of the politics is the politicians will never turn control over uh, police uh, uh, groups to a third party. I mean, the closest we have is we have one successful uh, disbanding of the police and reforming, but all they did was change the name and the, uh, within a, within a, uh, a municipality. And they I, did it I think you're referring to Camden, New, New Jersey, correct? Yeah. Yes, and they only did it so that they could get rid of the union contract. I mean, I <laughs> which mean, you're well, right there. You're speaking to a big problem that's with overarching not just the, the police departments, but also I mean, teachers and so forth. Well, and I think that's going to make it very difficult for anyone, you know, for politicians to support because the politicians will then get attacked or you know they'll get allies. So I think the biggest thing that we could do to uh, help our our law enforcement is to make it easier for them to get rid of the bad actors. And I think. Uh, th- there's been an article recently that said the biggest protection for, to, to prevent getting rid of them is some of the union rules. And so, I, and I don't think anyone is even arguing to do anything to affect those. And I don't even think Trump is arguing anything. And I think that's the reality of the strength of those unions. And I don't have a response on how to get around that or how to address it, but that's really what needs to be addressed because the current system makes it very difficult to get rid of the bad actors. And you, you can look at George Floyd and say one of those guys had, had a history of problems, but you know, the newest stuff coming out on the George Floyd case makes it with, you know, my understanding almost impossible for them to get a conviction on any of these guys. I mean, no, I think overcharged the, like crazy. They, the medical stuff makes it appear that he died of a drug overdose and, and these guys didn't do anything wrong. Um, and he was saying, you know, I can't breathe long before, he got to the ground. And so I, I think that not only did they overcharge, they jumped the gun, they charged before they got saw the medical report. And, but I would argue that the politician that did that uh, is in a no, win, no lose situation because if he wins, he's King, but if he loses, it's just because we're all racist. And so he didn't care. I mean, I would argue 
that that he could be in the position of not caring what the result is because he wins either way. Heads I win, tails you lose. Classic game, and you always win. And uh, I, I think um, you know definitely, Ken, you're you're approaching um, the issue. It, and I, I'm much more uh, in the libertarian camp of building bridges, right? So um, I would. <laughs> In libertarian politics, which, you know, that's a, a horrifying story to start off on saying, but I'm what you consider more of a right libertarian just because of my past experiences and stuff, and, and definitely much more empathetic to my friends on the right. And I would say, you know, I, I, I hear, I, I definitely hear, like, your argument because I was making the same arguments in the past. I guess I just look at when we, like, I acknowledge, yes, the unions are probably, like, the, the main root of the problems, but... I think if we just kind of re-examine, so I, I know the left-right paradigm is, is traditionally what people see the, the world of politics in. I kind of, I don't anymore. I see it more of, of like, you, you have more power in state power and less and more individual freedom, right? So I guess I would be much more empathetic towards trying to eliminate just the size and scope overall of, of government versus having the government picking winners and losers, be it in the market, be it in the criminal justice world, be it in you name the sector, just because I, I look at government as a wholly inefficient means of accomplishing solutions. Um, so I guess, you know, with that being said, looking at bail reform, you're looking at this beast that is, you know, the government and trying to, to reform it from the you know inside out. So let's kind of talk about your specific venture talking about bail reform. What's kind of the argument for bail reform that's being made from more of our friends on the left? And then I would say, in your response, why maybe they're a little off track? Well, I mean, let me start by saying I don't, I don't know if I agree that the unions, uh, police unions, are the main root of the problem because I don't know if we have a problem. I think we may have a few bad eggs, but that's in every industry. I mean, uh, there's a few bad eggs that attorneys that make bad name for everybody. But if if I was saying what is their argument? Their argument started that bail was substantively unconstitutional and that it was procedurally unconstitutional. I mean, they got a lot of success in Harris County because. They didn't have procedures in place to give poor people an opportunity to ask for a deviation from what we, they had a bail schedule. So your bail was automatically set pursuant to your charge and your criminal history, and they didn't have an opportunity if they were claiming poverty to ask for a deviation. So there was a procedural problem, just a defect, and they sued with that. And, you know, we've now had two different courts of appeals, I think the 10th or the 11th and the 5th, who said bail is substantively constitutional. So private bail, surety bail, what we do is substantially constitutional, so you can't just get rid of it. And so, but you got to have procedurals in pl- procedures in place. But what we're seeing is uh, where they've had success is they're pushing t- to get rid of us substantively, and they're not even seeking to replace us with any procedures or put procedures in place that make the system work better. So they're just trying to gut the system and recreate it into a new system that is much worse. I mean, the Vera Institute gave a presentation saying that any bail reform is going to have a 40% failure to approve rate, a peer rate, and that that should be okay. But a 40% failure to appear rate shuts down the criminal justice system. And I really am concerned that some of the coalition behind this group, that's what they want. I'm not all of them, but I think the others are being manipulated, but that's what they want. They want the criminal justice system to shut down because then people can't be held accountable and you have chaos. And I, and that's what you're seeing. Like, look in New York. It was so bad that during the pandemic, they changed. They got rid of their reforms because they were so bad. You couldn't hold anybody accountable. And you start having, we were keeping statistics. How many people got arrested twice in one day, five times in a week? And it's because they were making a system where they could not be held accountable. You could not look at whether they were a danger to society. And, you know, we don't look at just how much is it going to cost for them to get out. We, are they a danger? 
like, you know, the worst case we have is Alex Guajardo, who killed his wife, Caitlin. He'd been arrested twice before. He was arrested for beating her up and they gave her a protective or issued a protective order. And two days later he killed her and he was given a PR bond and just released. If, if he had had a bond set, well, first of all, they should have never released. And if they had not, because he was a danger to his wife and we have the ability to, I think, keep people in those situations, but he was already on a PR bond and he got arrested again. He should not have been given a new PR bond. And that's where we're having problems because now that they're getting a foothold in, they, so what? So what he fails to appear, he gets a new PR bar. So what he fails to appear a sixth time, he gets a new PR bar. And that's what's killing the system. You make the criminal justice system voluntary because if you don't show up, they can't do anything to you and they're not holding you accountable. So you just keep pushing your case out further and further. And, you know, justice delayed is usually justice denied. So would, would a, a fair maybe middle ground, right? Because I'm all about getting some real pa- uh, like practical solutions and building some of these bridges, right? And I think maybe one area that we could come to some some you know much needed uh, you know commonalities on would be the way to approach um, you know some actual maybe just like top down reform in general, right? And I would argue that maybe a federalist approach to our governance would help give a little bit of a shot in the arm to our communities and. Because instead of having this this constant um, delegation of authority to some higher, you know, authority being that the state or the federal government, and then saying it's not my problem, they're going to handle it, right? And then you have, and actually, I remember in your your conversation there with a the gentleman in Texas, that was one of your your arguments about saying, you know, you have these folks who now they're they're getting hit with federal crimes, right? So I would say, could we maybe say it would be a good starting off point? to start to empower um, more of our local governments to have more authority in, you know, where right now I would say the we've yielded some responsibility to the federal government. And that could be, you know, in terms of, of you know, drug trafficking or, or you name the, the federal, quote unquote, federal offense that would be, could be taking place or, or state offense, right? Um, is that maybe a better way to, to approach the solutions going forward? So the at least the, the enforcement arms of these justice systems are more local? You know, I don't know the answer to that question from that perspective, because uh, most crimes is is regulated at the state level. I mean, historically, you know, the federal government's really not been in the, you know, criminal justice system, uh, or it has been on a much lower uh, scale. Uh, and and where we're seeing, I mean, you can really see what's going on now is all ar- has arisen after Rodney King. Because if you remember Rodney King, the police were charged there and found not guilty, and they came in and charged them federally. And there was a whole case, an appeal on whether that was double jeopardy. And the Court of Appeals ruled that it was not because it was federal system versus state system. And so that really has what has given the growth that has allowed the federal system to step in. And where you're seeing it right now is because of the refusal of the local officials to prosecute and hold people accountable. And so you're seeing it because politicians are refusing to do their jobs. And so giving them more authority to say, no, I'm not going to do my job, I don't think is the right way to go. I mean, we need to figure out a way to take politics out of criminal justice. And and think about how bad a statement that is. We are turning the criminal justice system into solely about politics. I mean, there's an article in the Harris Harris County from the last two days where a prosecutor resigned because she was alleging that the DA was making decisions on which cases to prosecute based on politics, not justice. I mean, that becomes, if you don't like me and you get elected to office, you prosecute me. And then if, if I get elected and I don't like you, I prosecute you. That's 
contrary to our whole concept of criminal justice. And we've got to figure a way to take that out. I mean, well, then I would I would argue, right? So this is where my libertarian you know self just kind of beams because if you were to remove the the intrinsic arm of government, right? That that would be that power structure. I think you know if that was no longer there, then you'd have the the market fill that void, and then you'd have to be a good actor in the marketplace. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to be a successful market. Is that not a, a fair retort? I don't think that is a fair retort because I mean, there's like philosopher named Hobbes who who really his whole concept is that you know. As individuals, we're all fighting for power. But when we come together as communities, we make a compromise and we're compromising the fight for power to have uh, safety and to have civilization. If we're now at a point where we're really having chaos again and we're really fighting over who's going to have the power to make the decision, then we're going to go back to fighting each other. And you see that on the streets. You see that more and more in the last couple of weeks where, you know, different factions between the left and the right are fighting and sometimes physically and people are getting hurt. And I think that's a direct result of one, you know, people are getting the message. If you, whatever you do, you're not going to get, you're not going to get penalized. And now you're seeing, well, if one party's in control, the other party's actors are getting in trouble and that's bad too. And then you, you see this, Failure to compromise. I agree with you so much. We got to find a compromise. But if one side of, if one party says we're not ever going to compromise unless you completely agree with what we want, the the the, the, res- the compromise is not then to agree. The compromise is to hold tough and just try to weather it out. And we're going to see in this election, you know, I don't, you know, I don't like to talk about the national politics, but we're going to see because we've got one candidate saying get rid of cash bail, and we got one candidate saying that'll create chaos. And so we're going to have a referendum on law and order in this election or, you know, one party's going to make it that and the other party's going to try to make it about uh, the pandemic. I, as I've been watching in more recent weeks, I, I've just been saying they're, they're handing Trump this election on a landslide. I'm, I'm from upstate New York originally, and I mean, I'm not super far away from Rochester. Rochester is about I mean, it like if you get out of New York City. It's pretty red. Like every, it, the North Country slash upstate New York is a pretty red GOP area with your little, you know, you have your little strongholds in Buffalo, Rochester and Syracuse, Albany, Utica. But like otherwise, for the most part, the state's pretty red. And like when you have your person who, you know, Rochester was a booming city back in like the 70s and 80s. It was a manufacturing city. Kodak. That's where Kodak was originally from. And your average person, they're like your, I would say like your old style, like blue dog Democrat. Like they've been voting Democrat for their whole you know, family's generations. Now their kids are all Democrats and like they just kind of vote the party line. And then you see these videos coming out of like moving into these neighborhoods. And and the, the messed up part is, Ken, that, that a lot of the folks who are out in these, these riotous mobs and stuff, they're these white Antifa folks who like they, they're preaching social justice, but like they're, they're going out and they're doing the exact opposite. And they're going after the people that they seem to that they say they want to help. Um, I haven't really seen that too much. Uh, so it is an ultimate irony, but like to your point, this is, I think, going to be one of those things that people are constantly going to think of. And I mean, Joe Biden, he was two weeks too late, basically not even talking about the riots at all. And I'm like, how can you not talk about the riots? Like this is one of the biggest things that's on the American public's mind. And you have the entire Democratic National Committee go through without even mentioning it once, not once. It's nuts. We we go, I mean, you know, some people sometimes I think, well, how is bail reform related to all these, this violence going on? And I just, you know, we're, it, it, it really is the cornerstone of it. Because when you when you get arrested and you're brought before a judge and he sets your bail and said this is what you're accused of you're you're a danger to society 
if it's a, if you've been arrested multiple times and here's what your bail is, then you've got somebody that you have to answer to in addition to the courts and somebody that's going to hold you accountable, make you show up or come looking for you. You don't. And the problem is, okay, so we're at the very beginning of the criminal justice system. Say we need to get rid of that. We need to get rid of that accountability. We don't, we don't need to take away penalties for their failure to show up. And, you know, in Harris County, you know, which is the worst part of Texas right now for, you know, you get people not showing up six or seven times and they just, they, I mean, that's a new crime six or seven times. And not only are they not charged, they get another PR bond. Well, they, they get the message. And the problem is, you know, you've got courts even saying, oh, Harris County is a success. I mean, I mean, the matrix of what is a success is just crazy because increasing your dockets by 100%, doubling the number of cases you have pending is, is not a success. Uh, and so I, I think they measure success in a completely different way. So they're measuring success on well, we have fewer people in jail. We have fewer people showing up for court. We have fewer convictions. We have more crime. And and that is contrary to our history as a country. And I don't think it can last very long. And, and I think that you're going to see a backlash. I think you're seeing a backlash now. And as a result, then Biden has to come out and say the opposite of what he's been saying. Kamala Harris comes out. And I love her nickname, Kamala Lyalot. I love that nickname I saw somewhere where she has to come out and say, oh, well, we're not we're not against fracking, even though they said they were going to end it. And so you're going to see a lot more of that. And then you're going to see the scandal of the week. I think they have scandals planned every week for Trump all the way through the election because that's their whole strategy. They're going to be um, awfully surprised and they realize that the, the, the entire like Trump base, I think they kind of accepted who Trump is. Like nobody's expecting Trump to be anything but Trump. And that was pretty apparent with the Access Hollywood tape. Like, if you were going to jump off the train, that was probably the time. I, I forget who, who, oh, it was Carly Fiorina. Like, that was her, you know, last straw for her. Like, there, there was all these, re- like, that was the reason. And I don't think that you're going to really see that. Like, it's, what more do they have? Like, they they really threw all the stops back in 2016, you know? But think about it. We got Trump because of Obama. Not because of the person, because of the policies. If we get Trump for a second term, it's not because of Trump. It's because of the policies that gave us a Biden. It's because of the let's get rid of cash bail. Let's get rid of let's get rid of crime. Let's I mean let's not hold anybody accountable. Let's scare the crap out of people. They don't feel safe in their house. I mean I I tell people like you know uh, libertarians all the time and or people that are in favor of gun rights. You know we should at least agree that if the government is not going to protect me, I should at least have the right to own a gun to protect myself. And what just chaps me is when we're told you don't have a right to a gun and you don't have a right to protect yourself if we don't come to do it. And we just got through cutting the budget of the police, so they're not going to come. But don't worry, we'll send a social worker after you're dead. Right. Well, and I think what you're seeing more and more right now and um, the sentiment of that, you're not voting for like the lesser of two evils, but more so like the the direction of the country, um, which I – I hate, I mean, I hate that that's the case, but like, I get it, right? I, I look at the world and I'm like, okay, I understand why that's the belief. And and I definitely, I empathize more with my friends in the right because I do think that, you know, it would be a net negative um, relative to Trump having a, a Biden and Kamala presidency from a sheer, just what they would do with the executive branch. I, I, I would be a little more optimistic in a more conservative or, or maybe libertarian leading Congress from the Republicans 
if that were the case, much like we had the Tea Party Revolution back in 2009 or so. Um, so that would, you know, give me a little bit of optimism uh, at the very least. But um, I, with that being said, I guess, you know, Ken, going back to the main reason you, you joined the show, let's kind of focus here as we wrap up some some commonalities and some common ground you think that maybe you could uh, leave a libertarian audience with, um, you know, that that isn't super controversial where we can actually have some meaningful reform and yes, have some, uh, you know, some compromises that we would have to, to, to give on the, our side, um, but that actually would, would have some some long-lasting substantial reform and keep those who are actually committing violent crimes behind bars and hopefully uh, keeping those who are non-violent criminals, um, you know, from now having to go behind bars in the first place. I think the first thing we could do is we should we should all be able to agree that if we're going to get allow somebody to have a, a free bond, a PR bond, if they fail to appear, they don't get another one. I mean, that fair. seems like, OK, that should be fair. And if they are on a PR bond and they get arrested for a new crime, it should seem fair. They shouldn't get a new PR bond because one of the conditions of their bond was they not commit another crime. It just seems like simple accountability would say. Don't you, you, you were not successful the first time. So you don't get the benefit of another free bond. And if you're held in jail as a result, it's not because you're poor. It's because you broke your contract for getting a PR bond. And, and, and I'm not, I don't think everywhere should have a PR bond because you need to have the ability to supervise these people. And if you don't have a PR department, you don't have the ability to supervise then You shouldn't be increasing your PR bonds because that's going to dramatically increase your failure to appear. I think otherwise we could just have a reasonable bail schedule and make sure we have procedures in place so that if people want to ask for a, a deviation, they can. And uh, and that's what the Fifth Circuit says needs to happen. But we're, we're seeing the rejection of that by political reasons, even if it makes the system worse. And then I think the, the last thing that we've been proposing for several years is, you know, where you're seeing problems in the jails is where people get lost in the jail. So they get arrested, they get in there, and we had a situation in uh, um, Bear County in San Antonio where a lady was on a $300 bond, but she had mental issues, she, mental issues, she refused to go to court, she never went to saw anybody, and then uh, she got went to the infirmary, and then she ultimately died. She died of natural causes, but she should have never been in the jail because she had mental issues. We think if there was a requirement that after 72 hours, after magistration, if they're still in the jail, they have to be remagistrated then that is a safeguard, a check for the system so people don't get lost in the system. And I think those are reasonable uh, changes to the system that make the system better and make it, and improve it. It's something that we should all be able to agree on. All right. Well, there's a call to action, right, for uh, some some common ground. I'm all about that. So, Ken, with that being said, obviously, you're doing some uh, some good work there over uh, focusing that um, on bail reform. And, and uh, you know, really, you're, I think you're, you're presenting the argument in a much more rational and, uh, you know, not in a way that's so emotional. That's I think that's the, at the end of the day what we need to do is have more rational, thoughtful, intelligent conversations. And I think candidly, you know, there's there's some things maybe we disagree with, but at least we let the conversation saying, hey, we think we have some things we can, you know, actually accomplish. And I, I'm on board with that because I'm all about trying to actually get some things into action. So, Ken, with that being said, where can folks go ahead and follow you, um, you know, over on social media or if they want to stay up to date with any work that you're doing uh, in legalese, all that kind of fun stuff? Uh, we have um, our website, pbtx.com, which is the Pref- Professional Bondsman of Texas. We also have a Facebook page. Uh, f- if you search for PBT uh, associations or just search for the Professional Bondsman of Texas, we're also on, on Twitter, PB of Tex uh, or PB of TX. Uh, and um, that's probably enough right there. So we're, we're pretty active on Twitter and we're pretty active on Facebook. And we have a blog on our website that's constantly being updated. 
Perfect. I'll include all the links there in the show notes. Ken Good, thank you for joining The Brian Nichols Show. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me, Brian. Are you looking for a simpler life? Real information from real people without all the BS we're bombarded with today? Well, hey, I'm Gary Collins, the host of Your Better Life podcast. Make sure to go check it out. I'm a former intelligence officer, special agent, entrepreneur, and I'm here to give you the facts and give it to you straight so you can live the life you want. And make sure to check out my website, thesimplelifenow.com, where I sell all of my best-selling books, The Simple Life Series, Going Off the Grid, Living Off the Grid, and just flat out kicking some ass. Make sure to check it out, guys. All right, folks, so that's going to wrap up my conversation with Ken Good. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And if you did, do me a favor, number one, uh, go ahead and uh, give Ken a, a follow. Make sure you give, uh, give him a shout. Tell him uh, you enjoyed his appearance in The Brian Nichols Show. And uh, also do me a favor, because I know you're going to be over on Apple Podcasts when you're going ahead and downloading that, assuming, of course, you have an iPhone. If not, just go to whatever podcast catcher it is and do me a favor. Give us a five-star rating and review. Um, and do me a favor, once you do that, tag me on, on social media at Liberty on Twitter. Facebook and minds.com let me know you gave us a review I'll make sure I give you a nice old retweet there uh, and also folks I I, I I'm seriously so humbled just uh, at the number of guests that I have received, um, you know, emails in terms of exploring as, as guests here in the show. You guys are, are suggesting so many great folks. Keep it up. Brian at BrianNicholsShow.com. Send me an email. I love to hear the guests you have. And my God, we have a great list of guests uh, coming up here in the next uh, few weeks, next month or so. Um, you guys just strap in uh, and continue with that. Like, as I said at the beginning of the show, Shane Hazel, uh, he's a uh, U.S. Senate candidate there down in the great state of Georgia, joins the the show here on Friday, a great conversation with Shane, uh, and and definitely, uh, you know, Shane is, is one of the good guys in the movement, it's always one of the people um, I enjoy having a conversation with, so anyways, guys, with that being said, it was a great conversation with Ken Good. please again, do me a favor, share with family and friends, but with that being said, guys, it's Brian Nichols signing off here on The Brian Nichols Show for Ken Good. we'll see you on Friday. Thanks for listening to The Brian Nichols Show, find more episodes at briannicholsshow.com.